Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Plum, can you believe summer's almost over? You didn't think we'd let the summer go by without a show devoted to seafood, did you? Some of the most beloved seafood shacks stay open past Christmas or even year-round. So we want to know where to get the best lobster rolls in the state. Yes, one of my favorites is Costello's on Pearl Street at the Noank Shipyard. It's just past Abbott's, another great seafood shackle on the Mystic River. Later in the hour, we'll give you more tips for great places to get local seafood. Last week, our live show was preempted by the news, but we still had a great conversation with David Standrich, the executive chef at the Shipwright's Daughter in beautiful downtown Mystic. He caught our attention because he's doing some really creative things with seafood there. And like us, he's passionate about cooking seasonally and making friends with your local farmer and fishmonger. Chef David Standridge, welcome to Seasoned. Hi, how are you? We're so Chef, excited. We're excited to talk to you a little bit and have some time with you. And uh, I've seen some of the stuff on your Instagram. And when it comes to making seafood, I think we got the right guy here. <laughs> well, it helps to really be close to the water and where all the fish comes from. It's, it's right in the backyard. So we get to play with it a lot. I love that. Before we get into, you know, take a deep dive, pun totally intended, in the seafood realm, I want our, our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So talk about um, spending your childhood in Appalachia. And by Appalachia, I don't mean Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because actually my family's from Alabama. So it's like oh, wow. generationally, I'm Appalachia. I grew up in, in New Jersey, in the really northern part of New Jersey that no one really takes notice of in the Appalachian Mountains. And, um, you know, a lot of my life was like in the woods and out on the lakes and fishing and, and cooking for ourselves. And it kind of sowed the seeds of, of my future culinary life. Although that's where I started cooking. And I started cooking in very humble beginnings at the now infamous Action Park. Yes. So famous. <laughs> oh, there was a wow. documentary about how dangerous it was. <clears throat> yes, it actually was that dangerous. Yeah. I was like the head cook at the Wave Pool Snack Bar for quite some time. <laughs> Oh my That's goodness. That's awesome. I mean, I'm just laughing because I think my first cooking job was Taco Bell, but I think you might have me beat there when it comes <laughs> to working at Action Park. Talk about some of those early food inspirations, I guess, from coming from that area. What were some things that were, you know, we talk about shoreline food here in the state. We talk about pizza when it comes to New Haven. From where you're from, what are some things that you kind of lean on as a kid growing up? A lot of it is fish and just kind of farm stuff. You know, like I used to always, my mom would tell the story. I had a list when I was a kid. And I used to always, the neighbors used to ask me where I was going. I'm like, I'm going fifth and <laughs> they would ask me like just to make me say it i didn't even know what was going on but i would just was a big fisherman from a, a very early age and we used to just go and catch bluegills and what we used to call sunnies and my dad grew up by the water so we just cooked them and ate them we, we cooked and ate everything from bass to like perch um, little lake fish you know new jersey actually is really famous for a lot of their farm products like yeah. i've never had corn like we used to get from the local stand down the street so just all those things got me into food at an early age. And then we used to do all of our summer trips were um, on the shore of Montauk. We would mm -hmm. kind of get a campsite at uh, Hitter Hills and we used to do lobster bakes and the whole thing. So oh, yeah. seafood really was part of my life growing up. That is fantastic. I marvel at the two of you chefs who know how to work the seafood. But 
Why do you think seafood is so elusive for home cooks? Because it is. Like, I'll go to the monger, and there's some seafood I look at, and I'm like, if only I knew what to do with that. You know, like um, calamari. I looked at it, mm-hmm. and I was like, every time I've tried to make it, it comes out like a rubber band, and I'm doing something wrong. So why do you think it's not as approachable as, say, like a pork tenderloin? I think it's just not quite as easy to cook. I mean, you really hit the nail right on the head. Like, you do have to know how to cook calamari. There's a certain way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, fish doesn't last very long in your yeah. fridge. You kind of have to get it and make it right away. I think there's a some weird preconceived notions with, like, the smell, and I can't cook it in my house. I love some barriers there for people, like, to be adventurous with fish because they're also afraid they're not going to like it, especially trying new fish. I think that's a big barrier for people. Yeah. I try to tell people too, when they're cooking fish for the first time, things like scallops and calamari may not be your first foray into it. Try to find something that's a little bit hardier, you know, Mm -hmm. grilling a piece of swordfish or something like that, chef. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, um, I mean, we have internet now, so you kind of learn how to cook anything. Uh, (laughs) If you take a dive down YouTube, you can learn how to do literally anything. Build a house or grill swordfish. Google knows. And so I just feel like, (laughs) right. And I think usually also the fishmongers now. I mean, if you go in there and ask them, what do you, how do you prepare this fish or give me some tips? They always know. Yeah. I think enough people should do that more often, whether it's a fishmonger or even like your butcher or even the farmer at the farmer's market. If you ask them, they can definitely help you. Absolutely. They live on this stuff and they're, they're really the experts. And I think also chefs, sometimes it's hard to explain like how I cook fish because I cook fish in really different ways. And the fishmonger probably goes home to their regular kitchen in their regular house and makes fish. Right. And sometimes it's even better tips. Well, that chef, that was the kinda... fishmonger calling one of you. I just heard a, <laughs> I just heard a phone. Well, <laughs> chef, I wanted to ask you about, as a chef, I have such respect for Joel Robichon. And you were mentored by him in New York City, right? Yeah, rest in peace. Um, he left us a few years ago. Uh, yeah, I, I opened and closed that restaurant in the Four Seasons Hotel in like 2006, I think. As it happens, I cooked fish for the entire time I was there. I was the fish wow. guy. And yeah, it's an amazing experience. Just super intense, two Michelin star world where, you know, he used to say that our job is to seek perfection and also understand that it's never an achievable goal, mm. um, that we're going to fail every single time. There'll always be something wrong. And yeah, I just learned a lot. I learned a lot of a lot of hours and a lot of intensity. I think that's absolutely right. Just trying to get that perfection. Like that's as chefs, that's what we try to do. And, yep. you know, it's like the hamster chasing the treat over his head. He'll never get it, but he'll keep trying. I mean, I always try to preach that here is like, yeah, we're doing a great job. Everybody loves what we're doing, but we can do better. There's right. something else we're doing that we could change. You know, there's always like a way to raise the bar. And so that's just kind of been my driving force since I worked there. And did it carry over to Mystic, Connecticut, where you have... The shipwright's daughter, congratulations on celebrating one year, by the way. Thank you. We, we made it through, as I said uh, earlier when we were chatting, I think it was the worst time to open a restaurant in 100 years, <laughs> 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 which is uh, perfect timing, exactly how my life usually goes. But it's been amazing that, you know, the community has been really supportive. We've been so lucky here in Connecticut, and we've just been able to create something really special in a, a town that's pretty special already. Right. Lots of people know Mystic for its seaport. So mm-hmm. how do you source your seafood for the restaurant? Yeah, I have a couple of different ways. When I first moved here, um, I did a lot of research and tried. My goal is to get to the fishermen. You know, how do you get to the fishermen? Because they're right here. You know, in New York, you get the great fish, but you never know who caught it. But here we actually have an active commercial fishing dock. So the fishermen are really here. Um, and what I found was there's a company called Seawell. who also has some retail spots and Aileen uh, Whipple is the owner there. 
And she's just been incredible because I have kind of some higher standards, I think, than most of the local restaurants and their fish. And for a while, it was just like, okay, you bring fish and I send it back. You bring fish and I send it back. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, oh, no, it's Chef David. Run for cover. Exactly. There was guys who were like, I'm not even going to bring this downstairs because I know you're not going to take it. So finally, you know, I got a hold of her and she's just like, just give us a chance. Tell me what you're looking for and we'll figure it out. And so she did just a tremendous job of getting me fish at the right quality. So we used her for a long time and we still do. But recently I've been able to actually get a partnership going with an individual fisherman. His name is Josiah Dodge and he's out of uh, Westerly. And he's got a license where you can sell directly to people. Um, It's kind of a special license. You can buy right off the boat as a restaurant. You can buy right off the boat as a consumer. That fish is above and beyond the best fish that I've ever encountered. I get fish that's still alive. It's amazing. What is his name? Because you know, I'm writing it down. Yeah, absolutely. His name is Josiah Dodge, and he's out of Westerly. You can find him on Facebook. Yeah, J-O-S-I-A-H, Dodge. And um, his boat is the fishing vessel F.V. Edry Logan, which is his Instagram handle. Wow, it is it, awesome. it is so, so important, I think, to know with any protein, especially fish, going yeah. back to why it's so elusive for home cooks like me. But I always wonder, where is my fish coming from? And so if you have a fisherman or a monger that you trust, I think you feel better about what you're cooking. But what do you do when you don't have that fisherman slash fishmonger? Like when I go to my local grocery store, you know, it has the signage that says it's level one, level two, level three, level four. You know, I'm like you. I talk to the fishmonger at my grocery store. He sees me coming. He's like, oh, here's this one. She's going to ask me 10,000 questions. (laughs) (laughs) But do you have any tips for our listeners who go to their local monger or they go to their local grocery store? What should they be asking what should they be looking for to know that the fish they're eating or the seafood is actually fresh? I think the biggest tip is to be like you're being. You have to be the annoying customer a little bit. Mm-hmm. They're selling a highly perishable product. And so you're not always going to get the best thing right out front. Mm-hmm. And the biggest question for me that you should be asking is where is this from and when was it caught? Those are the two biggest questions. People don't realize how long fish has been on the shelf when right. they go to a supermarket. And the lifespan of a fish, there's always this old saying like fish is bad after three days or something like that. Fish has a hugely long shelf life if you get it fresh. We just never get it fresh when you buy it in a grocery store. You just Um, don't know how long it's been since it was caught, you know. Right, right. Exactly. As a chef, we we strive more and more to get more and more control over things. And when you can actually get fish directly from the fisherman off the boat, it definitely falls in that category of maintaining more control. But Chef, you, you talked a little something there I think that was uh, important to bring up. We talked about seasonally, like cooking it seasonally. And how does, mm-hmm. you know, we all know what seasonal means when it comes to vegetables. But we don't talk a lot about seasonality when it comes to seafood. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that for a second? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certain species that are local to the area. And most fish markets are pretty good about origin now, where they'll have a little tag that says yeah. where it was caught. And that's really important. And I would never at a fish market, buy something that wasn't called local waters, mm. unless it just didn't have anything. I was desperate. That's the first thing that shows that it's seasonal. If it was caught locally, it's seasonal, it's fresh. Fish do kind of run in, in different times of year. And the less it's in season, the more likely it is in being far away, like swordfish, for instance, or tuna. You can get it in the winter, but they're not fishing for it in the winter in the North Atlantic. No one's fishing for anything. So it's probably coming from Ecuador. And, um, you know, we don't really want Ecuadorian swordfish for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I have that push-pull of Mm -hmm. I try to look for local. And then sometimes, like, I'm like, 
off the coast of Florida, is that local enough? <laughs> you know, if, if, I have, if I'm crossing a big sea, you know, and I, I hate to give these other countries a bad name, but it does, it gives me pause. It really does. Yeah, it's handling for me. It's, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with how they fish in some other countries. I'm sure there's really various fishermen to fishermen and, and what the regulations are. But for me, if it's coming from Ecuador, how long did it take to get mm-hmm. here? And right. that's right. definitely right. not fresh. And then for me, I'd rather just support local business people. Right. And my goal is really, that's the whole thing. I want to support the fishermen. I want the fishermen to, I want that to be a, a trade and a job that is viable again. Yeah. Um, so I really want that money to go to the people that I would like to support. That's important to me. You know, minus all, and chef, I used to always say to uh, my sous chef or my chef de cuisine uh, back in the day, I would say, how many hands have touched this before it got to us? Mm. Yeah. And with that... We are going to take a very quick break. We are talking to Chef David Standridge. He is the executive chef at the Shipwright's Daughter in downtown Mystic. We're talking seafood. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. And this week, we're talking all about local, delicious seafood. We're talking cooking it, how you can even buy the best stuff, just like a chef's get Marisol. I love it. And joining us for this hour is none other than Chef David Standridge. He's the executive chef at the Shipwright's Daughter in downtown Mystic. So earlier, we were we got into a little bit about asking your fishmonger questions. And I wonder if you can give us some tips on what we should be looking for. We got into it a little bit. Obviously, we don't want to fish that smells like fish because that's just a one-way isn't ticket to, to bed. A weird paradox. I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I never thought about it like that until you said that. Right. And I was like, yeah, she's right, actually. Yeah. Could you imagine asking for a steak that didn't taste so much like steak? Could you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> For me, the biggest tip, and it's a little bit of, a, of an adjustment for people, you know, when you go to a fish market and you see a, a whole thing of fillets and ice, which there shouldn't really even be an ice, you can't tell anything from a fillet. Mm. It's too late. And I think that what would really help people is if they just get a little bit comfortable with cooking whole fish. It's really Reach. easy to do. Yeah, it's simple. Well, whoa, 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 Says that the two <laughs> chefs are like, it's so easy. Just get a whole yeah. fish and bring it home. <laughs> Hello? Uh, <laughs> what am I, I mean, doing? Listen. Uh, I get it. Like you're going to put a whole fish down in front of your your boys. First of all, they're going to think it's awesome, but they're not going to eat it. (laughs) They are going to think it's pretty cool. They're going to stab its eyeballs. Um, Yeah. So so walk me through it. So I'm going to go to the fishmonger. Actually, I think I saw red snapper in Mm -hmm. its totality. What do I do? Chef, the first thing I always say is that the the telling point in this funny she brought the eyes are the eyes of the fish. If the eyes aren't clear... That fish is probably not as fresh as you might think it is. Interesting. Yeah. The eyes are great because it's one of the few things you can tell without touching the fish. Okay. And they don't really like you to touch the fish. Right. So first thing, <laughs> so first things first, clear eyes. Then what? If they would let you touch the fish, sometimes, I mean, I've done it in stores where I was like, I'll wear a glove. It's fine. When you push on the flesh, it should bounce back. It should be firm. If it leaves a fingerprint, mm. don't buy it. Uh, okay. That's a bad sign. Then the other one is the gills. The gills should be like a bright red, ideally. As the fish gets older, they're going to start to get more of a brown color and start to get kind of slimy. But gills from a really fresh fish are just like crisp and they're dark, bright red. 
those are the, the big telling signs of fresh fish. The immediate no bueno sign is if you take the fish out and it smells terrible. You trust your senses, you know? Okay, so I've, I've checked the eyeballs. I've checked the gills. I've checked the <laughs> smell. I bring it home. What am I doing yeah. with this beautiful red snapper? So before you bring it home, you ask your fishmonger to clean it for you. Oh, gosh, So they can take the fins God. off. Okay, yes. <laughs> scale, they'll take the scales off. They'll take the fins off. They can basically get it ready to cook. And it's just a whole fish. It's totally clean. All you have to do is cook it when you get home. And then when you get it home, like you don't have to worry about cutting it. You don't have to. You can cook it completely whole. Just buy a fish that's small enough for your pan or for your grill. Personally, I try to cook fish outside just because I don't have a hood in my house and I don't yeah. really love to smell the fish yeah, yeah. the next day. So on a grill, I really recommend like a charcoal grill because most gas grills don't get hot enough. Yeah. Just get your coals ready like you would grill anything. Make sure the grill itself is really clean Yeah. and oil it well. Oil the fish, season it, put it on the grill, and that's about it. That's um, it. That's pretty much it. I mean, the flipping process can be a little bit tricky. Those little fish holders that they sell, if you've ever seen them, they make these fish holders out of wire oh, where yes. it's like opens like cage. a cage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those yeah. things work great. Oh, duly Highly noted. recommend. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now that you've co-signed, I'll get one of those. <laughs> well, when it comes to cooking fish on the grill, side of my so I get very, I get very fired up about a grill. Yeah. I still like to have that one side hot, that one side not mm. so hot. So that mm-hmm. indirect heating method to where you have the coals on one side of the grill. Or if it's a gas grill, only one side of it on and let it get nice and hot, covered, and then put that fish on. You know, maybe you could start it on that hot side, then you can move it over so it doesn't get all charred up and burned. Because there are some occasions if you keep those little fins on and little parts of the fins, it, it can char up. And I don't think it looks as pretty on a plate. <laughs> That's true. I like the charred parts. Though. I just like the crispy bits. I do too. Because yeah. I, I happen to love salmon skin. I love when it gets delicious. crisped up. Oh, my oh yeah. God. It's like it's like salmon bacon. It's so delicious. Okay, I have to go back to this. So I can ask the fishmonger to debone and all that business and then just bring it home and I'm throwing it on the grill. They're not going to debone it for you. They're, okay. That would be a fillet situation. Okay, we kind of do a special wondering. deboning here where it's whole but no bone, but that's not kind of thing you'll get in a fishmonger. But they'll take the fins off and there'll still be bones in the fish which I think a lot of people in America aren't used to, but it's not that big a deal. So yeah. so they take the, they descale it. They take the, mm-hmm. what else are they taking off? The fins? Yep. And then so I'm, I have this whole fish at home. Do I just stuff it? I mean, I'm, I'm literally, I'm trying herbs. to envision this at home on behalf of all my home cooks. Listen. Yeah, 100%. It doesn't have to always be on the grill either. If you don't have a great grill, if it's too cold outside and there's nine feet of snow, Get a nice big cookie sheet, sheet pan, put some parchment paper down or that that wax paper yeah, yeah. and put your fish on there, put some olive oil on there, throw some herbs, season it up nicely and just roast it in a 350 degree oven. That works great too. Okay, fine. I'm holding both of you to it. <laughs> <laughs> throw some herbs, put some citrus, put, put some other things in there to flavor it up. I'm a big herbs at Provence fan. You yeah. know, I mm-hmm. like putting lavender and things like that. And I think it adds a lot of flavor to it. But seasoning it is key. But, you know, make sure when you get that, they scale that for you because you don't want to scale that fish in your kitchen. You'll be no. fine. Right. It'll be a, a disaster. Month. Although there Absolutely. are some fish where you can eat the scales. We do a lot of scale on fish here. It works really well. Well, that so- might be a little advanced, but we can go into that next time. Well, no, <laughs> actually, I actually I want to I'd like to take a turn in this direction mm. because, you know, we have the usual suspects. Salmon, I think, is pretty approachable by a lot of people. Shrimp tilapia are there other seafood that we might turn our noses up or be like i don't know what that is that we should be really leaning into there are so many 
and I think it's it's one of the things that I really want people to know about because when we talk about sustainability, mm-hmm. it's obviously hugely important. A lot of the fish that you find, especially if you're talking about grocery store fish or bigger chain stores, they have like the major fish, the ones that everybody wants, the super popular ones. If you're doing a small fishmonger, they at least might have the ability to get some different fish. And there's a lot of really sustainable species that are delicious that you don't see on the shelves. Yeah. Porgy is a big one locally. There's so many porgy out there. Delicious They're also fish. called scup. Just a great fish, easy to cook. They have some bones in them, but all fish have bones. Hmm. They're also really inexpensive. That's the other thing. Right. That some of these underutilized species for, you know, there's a whole other side of this discussion about, you know, the affordability of fish and, you know, how people can get fish at, that aren't necessarily at a high income level. And some of these species that are a little underutilized are a great way for people to get into the fish, into their diet without spending a ton of money. You know, I want to talk about those scup or those porgies for a mm-hmm. second because one of my favorite fish actually to eat hands down is the porgy. It's inexpensive. Mm-hmm. It's delicious. And if you take that porgy and you dredge it in just a little bit of flour or even mm-hmm. a flour of your choice if you want to go gluten-free, mm-hmm. but you just dredge it in a little seasoned flour. And I season mine up a little bit of garlic powder, salt, some black pepper. Uh, and just dredge it in that and then put that down and pan sear that or pan fry that. What a delicious sandwich Porgy mm. makes. I'm telling you, it is so good and it's so simple. I think it's one of those things you see in a store and you're like, I don't know what to do with that. What is a Porgy? And it's this cute little fun fish to catch and they're delicious. <laughs> it's a fun yes, fish to catch. <laughs> it is. I love them. <laughs> That's a true story. Let's see. <laughs> All right. Plum and I were talking the other day about sea robin. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I love sea robin. It's a weird looking fish, I have to say. Yes. It's actually, I, it's got a weird face, a couple of fish with weird faces. But sea robin to me, and this is going to turn everybody off, but it kind of looks like a puppy. Oh, so I was going, what? Oh, it's sea puppy. Okay, time, <laughs> time out, time out, time out. It looks nothing like a puppy. And it, it ha- <laughs> under its dorsal fins, it has these weird talon things that come out. If these little sea, like feelers. It, if if sea robins came down on a spaceship, we'd all would run for our lives. <laughs> it's not true. a puppy. We would not the faceless play catch. Puppy we would not play catch. It's got a snout. Well, and this, it kind of barks when you catch it, quite frankly. It makes these weird barking sounds. This is unbelievable. <laughs> now that I've become emotionally attached to the sea robin, how do I cook yes. it? Yes. Same like any other fish. Honestly, it's a, it's a white flesh fish. It's like a little meatier than something like fluke or, or halibut would be, but it's perfectly mild and, and sweet and delicious. Um, it eats the same things that fluke and um, you know a lot of sea bass and all those kind of northeastern deeper in the water fish eat. And it's easy. Just fillet it. That's how I'd recommend it. Or you can just cut the tail off actually and just eat the tail on the bone is a delicious way to do it. Hand roasted. You know you can cut the fillets and fry. Also, it's actually become a really popular fish and chips fish in england oh um, hasn't quite crossed the pond yet you know i don't think of it much as a, a lot of meat on that fish but a lot, i hear a lot about the tails so that's interesting there's quite a bit actually that the fillets are pretty thick it's just there's a, the head is quite large and it's a bit it's quite bony so you can't use a head for anything but we love it we don't get much of it unfortunately we've got the the sea robin we've got the the porgy any other fish that we yeah some of the overlook. more sustainable ones locally are um, obviously shellfish like scallops oysters redfish is a good one red perch it's an ocean perch delicious again a lot of these fish too people are like what is it like well it's like it's like delicious fish you know there's not a, <laughs> it's, that's what it's like they're not you know there's really when you're talking about white flesh fish there there's a pretty similarity there in in what they taste like you know they're all mild you can pretty much do the same things with them they're very interchangeable. 
Right. Um, although they all do are a little different. It's not like the difference between salmon and flounder, you know, all kind of in the same wheelhouse. Right. Although I, when my children were very young, I convinced them that tilapia was chicken um, <laughs> and they bought it hook, line and sinker because I wanted them to have some fish and I yeah. scarred them for life because now they, I think they still refer to tilapia as chicken. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Kind of the chicken of the fish world. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Talk to me about, um, you know, I I think about sustainability, as you mentioned, and I think that many of us consult with the Monterey Bay Aquarium's Seafood Watch website, if we can, if we want to know where our food is coming from, if we want to help continue, you know, with the ecosystem. And I wonder if you, what your take is on that, you know, how can we be better consumers? What is your understanding of that Seafood Watch? I look at Seafood Watch a little bit. It's not my favorite list. I feel like the list is not for the local regions. It doesn't really depict what's going on in the Northeast totally accurately. I like the NOAA website better, the fisheries at NOAA.gov. Good to know. Um, know. That one you can kind of go species by species and it gives a lot of detail. Yeah, And um, that one has better information for the Northeast, I think. But it's really important. You know, um, there are certain species that aren't managed well. And, and what we're really looking for in fish is fisheries that are managed well, where there's quotas and we're maintaining the stocks of the fish. That's the number one thing where they're not in danger of being depleted. Beyond that, it's for me, we kind of go deeper here. Obviously, I'm like, we want to know how the fish was caught. We're talking mm-hmm. about bycatch. And is it causing other fish to be wasted? Can you even be careful with the way you're catching when you're catching in a huge net and you're just catching everything? Those are things that are important to us too. It's, it's a little harder to drill down on for the everyday consumer, which is why I think like my recommendation too is farmer's markets are great because mm-hmm. most farmer's markets now, especially if they're kind of bigger ones, they usually have a fish guy if you're anywhere near the, the coast. Yeah. And that guy is going to be way more connected to where the fish come from, just like the farmers were more connected to where the vegetables come from. And, you know, shopping is small as possible is going to help. Well, Chef, I think it's interesting that you brought up how it's not the same, you know, for here in the Northeast. And one of the things I love about the Northeast where we live is that we do have some incredible seafood, incredible access to great seafood out here. And I think of things like scallops and oysters and you all being right here is like very bountiful for us. Are scallops one of those things that you feel the same way about? Yeah, they're on the list for responsible seafood. Um, they're farmed, and even the not the wild ones are still very plentiful. We're famous for our scallops in Stonington. Here is like one of the major things, and they're just really delicious and super easy to cook. Some seafood get a bad rap. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of swordfish. Yep. High levels of mercury. What What is your understanding of some fish that maybe we want to avoid, not because it's overfished? But because, you know, it may it may or may not contain something in it that in the long term, as a human, we don't want to consume. Yeah, it's really tricky. It's so complicated, right? You know, you've got the sustainability side of whether depleting it, is it good for you? Is it, you know, is it good for the environment? And I think that, um, you know, for the mercury side, it's, it's pretty simple. Big fish, more likely mm-hmm. there's a chance of mercury in it. It's about, you know, there's obviously there's mercury in the water and the longer a fish is in the water, the more likely it is to have mercury in it. So larger species of fish tend to be the more mercury heavy. Any kind of contamination can build up longer in a large fish. So if you're worried about that, definitely something to think about. However, if you look into it and do the research, eating tuna or eating swordfish as a part of your diet, it's not an issue. It's if you're eating it every day. You're listening to our conversation with David Standrich. He's the executive chef at the Shipwright's Daughter in Mystic, 
A moment ago, David mentioned the NOAA website as a resource with information about sustainable fisheries. NOAA stands for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Their website is noaa.gov. Their user-friendly database of sustainable fish species can be found at fishwatch.gov. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up, we'll talk chowder and lobster rolls with David and spend a couple of minutes getting recommendations from a local author who wrote a book about New England seafood markets. He's also written about seafood shacks for our region in Yankee Magazine. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. I'm Chef Plum. We're talking all about seafood with our new friend, Chef David Standridge from Shipwright's Daughter. Chef, I'm excited to talk about chowders. Chowders are a thing that I love to make. Mm -hmm. It's generally a crowd pleaser. You got some tips for us? Yeah, definitely make it yourself and don't take it out of a bag. That's my number one tip. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great tip. That is a very good tip. Um, actually, the one thing, traditional chowder is weird. New England food is weird in a sense. I always say like, you know, New England food, black pepper is considered spicy. So I just kind of revamp chowder. We do a chowder here in the in the colder months where first thing is add wine to it. Mm. Please put some wine in there. <laughs> it really needs it. Um, so we make a traditional chowder with a flour. We make a roux and then you add your aromatics and kind of sweat out your aromatics and then deglaze with wine before we put the fish stock mm. or the clam juice in. And that really, really brings it up a huge notch to have a little bit of acid in the, in the chowder. So I always say that a great chowder has to have three things. You have to have some sort of pork product in it, pork belly, bacon, something like that. I love potatoes in it and I love a little bit of cream in it. I mean, that's kind of the standard New England clam chowder. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, for me, those three things are what start, you know, a great start for a chowder. I'm down for it to taste either one of them. If you two are making chowder, I have a spoon ready. I love to put crackers in them as well. The southern in me comes out. I like to put a little Ritz cracker in there. That's Ritzy. That's Hey. <laughs> Where do you guys stand on a clam chowder, New England clam chowder, versus the Manhattan clam chowder? Oh, Chef, you better go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also there's the Rhode Island clam chowder, which what? is a whole other app. Is I don't it know green? If you're no. I live on the border. Oh, my there's gosh. There's a third. The trilogy. You know, even all my years in New York, and I do love Manhattan clam chowder, but to me, it's not chowder if it's not New England clam chowder. I like the creaminess. I like the traditional kind of, that's where it came from. And then there's Rhode Island chowder, which is basically just a clear broth. Oh. No tomato, no cream, just It sounds like fish soup. Yeah, it is, but it's it's. I don't like it. To me, it's terrible. But some people really love it. <laughs> to around. me, it's terrible. Have you ever heard of this? It's like it's just like. I mean, it uh, sounds dreadful. Naked and ashamed. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Look at it. Somebody's heart just broke, chef, when you said that. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, clam chowder is like I said. Let's stick with the classic and let's not change mm-hmm. it up too too much. And tomatoes and clam chowder, just stop it. Yeah, I'll agree. I it's agree. Chiapino. Exactly. I do love a chiapino. Hey, the, the first step is just get stuff local and get it fresh. That's the yep. key first thing you can do anytime, anywhere. And like Chef said, throw some wine in there. It helps. Wine. Definitely. I cook with wine and sometimes I put it in my food. Um, <laughs> can we transition to the lobster roll? Because yeah, for sure. I love lobster rolls. Most important question, though, about the lobster roll, cold with mayo 
or warm with drawn butter. And this could change the rest of this broadcast is all I have to say. <laughs> this is really dicey territory. I yeah. feel like you're going to ask me who I voted for. <laughs> <laughs> it is that polarizing. It is. Wow. I'm a mayonnaise guy. <gasps> Wow. That is the sound of my heart popping out of my chest and falling to the ground. <laughs> Jeez, I didn't see that coming. Huh? Me neither. I just like that? it. Yeah. I want celery in there too. I just I need I need all those things. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, do you have like a dressing you make up with the mayo? Like do you add Yeah, a we do. Do you add a little We do both. Well, I was going to say We do actually. I'm looking yeah. on your menu and you have under the snacks section mini mm -hmm. lobster roll, chilled with lobster yep. salad or hot with lobster butter. Yeah, so we do the chilled with a, like a lemon mayonnaise that's got celery and onions in it and some fine herbs, like a mix of French herbs and a little bit of totally out of left field togarashi powder on top, nice. which is a Japanese spice. And then the warm one is a little special here. We make a lobster butter. Mm. So we do infused butter with lobster with the lobster body. So it's like a super intense lobster flavor. And then we poach a lobster in that. And so it just kind of kicks it up a, a few notches. Oh, that sounds That great. sounds delicious. So good. And I'll tell you mine if you want to hear it. So yes. I have yeah. a little trick I do. It kind of combines the two, minus also. You might get upset at me here oh, as well. Boy. I want it warm, but as opposed to buttering the roll, I actually would put a light layer of mayo on the roll and then toast it. Oh, kind of like a grilled cheese. Get, you got yep. it. And then hit that with a uh, wonderful lobster meat. I don't like to use claw meat on it. I'll use tail meat only. And then pour a little bit of that warm drawn butter on there. But my drawn butter, as I'm making the drawn butter, I actually put half a vanilla bean in there. Vanilla bean? Yes. That's a nice trick. Wow. There you go. I don't tell anybody that one very often, but it comes out so delicious and the vanilla mm -hmm. is not overpowering. It's just a hint in the background. It's so good. Chef David, can we talk about this? Because uh, now I'm, I am so deep into this menu. Rigatoni Nero tuna <laughs> bolognese. Yes. Yum. It's delicious. It's become kind of one of our signature dishes. To me, I love it because it's a byproduct dish and we're all about trying to do a lot of utilization of parts of the fish that aren't normally used. People don't maybe realize that about 60% of a fish is thrown in the garbage. Very little of it's actually garbage. You could use it all, but most of it goes in the trash or fertilizer or whatever. And so for the tuna bolognese, you know, we're butchering a lot of tuna and there's this big bloodline on tuna and you can kind of see it on the fillets where it's this darker meat that people generally avoid, which has a bit of a stronger flavor. I just kept throwing them out and I don't want to throw them out anymore. So was, what can we do with it? So we made a spicy Italian style sausage out of it. Mm -hmm. And then we make a, a pretty traditional bolognese from that point with uh, tuna sausage instead of pork. And it comes out great. Wow. That sounds amazing. What a great use of that piece of meat. And yeah. it tastes almost tinny, I guess. Mm. It does. It has a little bit of metallic taste and it's not mercury that's giving it that taste. <laughs> don't, don't panic. <laughs> it's just got that really strong and it's a little more, I don't like to use the word fishy, but it's just more intense. Well, Chef, I knew when we were doing this show and I was thinking of my wife when she listens and, and she hates to cook seafood and it's definitely a little scary for her. So I was thinking I could give three tips. Like if I could tell somebody three things that would help them cook seafood better at their house. And I came up with a couple and I'm hoping you can give us a couple as well. So I think it's really, really important, minus all, to take your fish out and salt it a few minutes before you cook it. That helps firm up the fish, keep it nice and firm and bring some of that moisture to the top. Also, I think patting the seafood dry before you cook it what that does is it helps get that beautiful color on the outside, that sear on the outside. If you don't pat it dry and you put it in there wet, it will steam and get that kind of gross grayish color that none of us like. So make sure it's dry. And then also, friends, 
buy an extra piece of fish. And here's why, because no two pieces of fish ever cook the same and there's no real exact science to it. So you have to be a little touchy feely with it to know. So touch it, feel it, kind of prod it a little bit. So if you have that extra piece, you've got enough for everybody besides the one you took apart with your hands and fingers. So that's the three easiest things I can tell somebody who's getting into fish cookery at their house. Chef, what do you think? First thing is buy local, buy fresh. That's the key. Know where it comes from. If you to go take a less subpar piece of fish home and then try to make it good for the home chef, it's going to be pretty difficult. So getting the quality product is really, really important. Um, the second thing is, I'm kind of stealing yours a little bit, the dryness of the fish. We actually dry age our fish for at least a few days before we serve it. Okay. And you can do this at home, super easy. Just basically leave the fish on a plate in your refrigerator uncovered overnight. And the next day, it's gonna the skin is gonna dry out, and then when you go to sear it in a pan, it's gonna get crispy, like almost like a pork crackling, mm. and it's just amazing, really a game changer. And then um, I think you know the grill is to me the the smoke from the grill really solves a lot of problems, <laughs> and I think it's so easy <laughs> to cook outside on the grill. If you can do it on charcoal, it's really great. And it keeps you from kind of messing up your house. And that, I think, is a detracting thing for a lot of people who don't want to cook fish in their house. Those are fantastic tips, all of them, on behalf of all the home chefs and the wannabe home chefs. Thank you both (laughs) for giving us these tips to making uh, cooking seafood a little less daunting. It has been so much fun talking to you, David. We really appreciate your time, your tips, your observations on sea life. And you know what? I'm still going to like you and come to your restaurant, even though you like a lobster roll with mayo. <laughs> don't judge me too harsh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. This, uh, he thinks uh, the, the puppy of the sea is the sea robin. I'm still a little skeptical of that. <laughs> we have a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> David, thanks for your time. We really appreciate you. Yep. Thanks so much for having me on. David Standrich is the executive chef at the Shipwright's Daughter in Mystic, Connecticut. You can check out his recipe for tuna bolognese on our site, ctpublic.org slash recipes. You can also find Julia Tertian's fish cakes, Marcus Samuelson's seafood stew, and Chef Plum's oven roasted salmon, among other seafood recipes. Before we wrap up here, listeners, we'd originally hoped to bring you this show live and take your calls and recommendations for the best fish markets and seafood shacks in our region. Well, as it turned out, we were preempted by breaking news, but we still wanted to get some recommendations in here for you. Our next guest via Zoom is Mike Urban. He lives in Old Saybrook and has been writing about markets and seafood shacks for years for Yankee Magazine. He's the author of the New England Seafood Markets Cookbook. His book, Unique Eats and Eateries in Connecticut, will be published this fall. I asked Mike if we could start with his recommendations for great seafood markets and then get into some of his picks for fried clams and lobster rolls in the region. Well, one that's near and dear to my heart and near and dear to my home is Atlantic Seafood right here in Old Saybrook, where I live. It's a nice little shop run by uh, Lisa Friedman and Jerry Duran, a nice couple. They do a great job, wonderful stuff. They fillet their own fish on the premises, which is important. Jerry is a, a Culinary Institute of America trained chef, and he does all their prepared foods. They also carry nothing but uh, hard shell lobster, which is uh, oftentimes by many the preferred type of lobster as opposed to soft shell. Uh, another one would be uh, City Fish, if you don't happen to be on the shoreline, uh, inland in Weathersfield, just south of Hartford, a uh, Greek-American owned, I think, 
third or fourth generation, almost fish warehouse. They do a lot of wholesaling, but they have an absolutely wonderful seafood uh, display counter, more than 30 feet long with everything you can imagine in terms of filleted fish, shellfish, and everything else, all right there, as fresh as can be. They have a gigantic lobster tank uh, right in back of that with dozens of lobsters up to, you know, five or 10 pounds. I wouldn't recommend eating lobsters of that size. That's more (laughs) for just looking at and throwing back in the ocean, in my opinion. But, you know, uh, they got plenty of one pounders, one and a half pounders, two pounders, perfect stuff for taking home and boiling up. I agree with that. Some of those giant lobsters are not nearly as good as you might think they're going to be. Exactly. I love the fact that you talked about the spot having a a culinary institute grad. That's what I am as well. I I graduated CIA a while ago. One of my favorite fish markets actually in the Hamptons is Gossman's. I work out there all Mm -hmm. year and they have a great chef there as well who does that. And I think any great fish market should have that. I almost kind of use that for me as a, as a tell, like if they have a great chef there making their prepared foods, these guys probably know what they're doing. Yes. Good point. Good point. For really good seafood, it's best to go to the seafood markets. Supermarkets have, you know, decent fish, but, you know, these seafood markets that we have, we're blessed to have them here. Several of them up and down the coast that are, you know, not too far away from anybody. And, you know, that's, uh, that's the way to go. Some of the best scallops in the world come from right here in our waters in Eastern Connecticut. Just Sure. Stonington. Absolutely. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about seafood shacks. You know, you might go to get like fried clams or lobster rolls or something like that. You know, what are a couple of seafood shacks, those hidden gems that you might know about that we don't? Let's uh, start with fried clams. Uh, some of the best places to go fried clams, I think, in the state of uh, Connecticut along the shore are the Clam Castle in uh, Madison. You know, real nice little place. Changed owners, I think, about four or five years ago. And it's, you know, doing really well. Uh, Jacques Pepin eats there from time to time. Nice. I'm told I haven't seen him there yet, but you know, I have seen pictures of him on Facebook noshing with his daughter and some of his friends there. So that's a that's a good positive sign. That's a pretty positive endorsement there. Another place, a restaurant in East Haven called the Sandpiper. Again, a Greek American owned establishment, and Greek Americans are really involved in the seafood business, not just here but uh, all over the place. Uh, wonderful uh, whole belly fried clam there. I named theirs one of the top ten fried clams in New England in a Yankee magazine article a few years ago. Uh, great spot there. Lenny and Joe's, always a good solid staple. Also in Madison uh, and in Brantford. And then there's a Sea Swirl and Mystic. Wonderful little spot. Sounds like an ice cream place. It is an ice cream place in an old Carvel stand, but they do great deep fried seafood there. Also uh, fish and chips as well. That's the other thing I would recommend there. I love Costello's in Noank. That's one of my favorite spots too. And that's the sister shack of Abbott's where you get lobster and Costello's, you get all the deep fried seafood there. By the way, with Abbott's, as long as we're on uh, seafood shacks, they have great lobster rolls. They have three different sizes, a four ounce, an eight ounce, which they call, I think, OMG, oh my God. And then they have a uh, 16 ounce. This is, you know, a full pound of lobster meat called uh, LOL. It's a ridiculously large amount of lobster meat. Their lobster roll is good, but if you go to Abbott's, get the whole lobster. They steam them there in these big old cast iron vaults, you know, it takes a little bit longer, but it's just a great place to sit down by the water, get a bib on, you know, just bring <laughs> your own beer or wine, any side dishes you want to bring that they don't sell. They're happy to let you bring that kind of stuff there and uh, just dig in and tear a lobster apart and have a great time. Any opportunity to wear a bib, I'm in. <laughs> Absolutely. It's stand back. It. Yep. Picnic tables, a whole bit. Dining in the rough. That's, I'm glad that's part of their name because the whole dining in the rough uh, experience is, is to go outside, uh, order at a counter or uh, a window, get a ticket, pay your thing, go find a table. They call your number and you sit outside and you eat. And that's a great New England summertime tradition. I love it. I just want to take a step backwards to the fried clams for a second sure. and talk to you about what do you think makes a delicious fried clam because so many people now 
they'll try to make a batter or they'll try to bread it and they overthink it. They're putting too many things in it, in my opinion. I would uh, tend to agree with you. Yes, I think simpler is better with a lot of these seafood dishes, including lobster rolls. Uh, in the case of fried clams, I think one thing I learned, it's not here in Connecticut, but up in Massachusetts, there are three places, Farnham's, Woodman's, and the Clam Box in Essex and Ipswich on Route 133, which is nicknamed the Clam Highway. And one thing they do that makes a difference is they put partial or full animal fat in their fryers, which of course is not good for you, but it does amazing things to the flavor. So if you get the opportunity, go up there sometime if you really want to have the best in the world fried clam experience. But, you know, uh, down here, it's, uh, they're mostly breaded. They can be very good. You know, the places that we mentioned are all, you know, good candidates. But like you say, don't over-season these things. Don't over-prepare them. Let the seafood speak for itself. Yeah, 100%. How do you think it changes when you cross that border to Rhode Island? Like, you look at what we're doing here in Connecticut, and you cross over to Rhode Island, or you go into Massachusetts. You know, how, how different do you think what we do with seafood here is to what they do? Probably the major uh, uh, difference, and most people are probably aware of this, is that in Connecticut, we're the home of the hot buttered lobster roll. Once you get across the border, it goes over to, uh, you know, mayonnaise, you know, chilled lobster meat, and uh, that's the way it is pretty much all the way. The the hot butter thing is bleeding upward, bleeding north, and there are some places taking it on. But, you know, most places up to and through Maine are, you know, uh, chilled uh, lobster things. And then there are regional differences. You get up into uh, Rhode Island, you know, they specialize uh, particularly in calamari, a lot of squid is harvested up there. You know, not so much seafood being harvested here locally in Connecticut anymore, unfortunately. But, you know, as you said, in Stonington, they have great scallops, uh, wonderful flounder, you know, for fish and chips and things like that. Now we have a lot of people in Connecticut doing a lot of oystering, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, Lots of oysters here in the South. I spent some time with several of these people and how just different parts of the sound, you know, whether it's salinity or minerality, change the flavor of the oyster. I just think mm-hmm. it's been such a cool thing. Whether you get them closer to the city or you get them further out, it's a different taste than the oyster. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, there's a guy down in Norwalk that's become famous for his oysters down there. He's getting close to New York City. You know, you'd think, well, is the water okay down there? Oysters have a way of, as you know, filtering you know things out. They can live in all kinds of nasty stuff and still be just fine and still be edible. And then up in Stonington, a bunch of you know uh, oyster operations there. And then up in Rhode Island, Matunic, is a place where they're harvesting a lot, you know, farming them actually, which is wonderful. It's great. There's a great restaurant up there too. I'm trying to think of the name of it. I, I've been over there once or twice. Yeah, there's Matunic. Uh, the yeah. Matunic Oyster Bar, I think, right? Like an oyster yeah. bar. Yeah. And he has his own farm out in back and watch them harvesting oysters while you're enjoying that. Great guy. Yeah. He actually grows his own vegetables too, which is pretty cool. Yeah. He's got greenhouses and everything. Not too far. If you're going to the Block Island Ferry, you know, just take a turn off about five miles before you get to it and goes down that little uh, gravel road. He's got this wonderful spot there. And the food's delicious over there. Yeah. Uh, I think you're talking about Cops Island Oysters down in Norwalk, right? With Norm Bloom? Yeah, that's the one. Great family, fantastic people. They also actually catch lobsters, too. And the cool thing about them, if you call them, you can go down there and pick up a lobster. at Connecticut, actual Connecticut water lobsters. It's pretty cool. Really? Wow, that's great. It's good to know. Let's talk a little bit about lobster, like lobster shacks, like places to get a great lobster roll. Number one would be, I think, in many people's choices as well, is uh, Lobster Landing in Clinton. 
run by this kind of crazy uh, aged Italian guy with a bandana and a big bushy beard named Bocci. <laughs> Great guy, wonderful fella. And he makes a wonderful lobster. They, they handpick all the meat there, which is unusual in Connecticut. It's a, most other places have to order it in from you know a distribution house that does all the, the lobster meat picking. Yeah. But he does this uh, wonderful thing where he sort of parboils the meat once it's picked, puts it in little bags and then takes it out and drizzles a little butter over the top and uses sort of an Italian sub roll instead of a split top hot dog bun. You toast these things on a uh, sort of an old traditional gas-fired uh, backyard barbecue. Very simple, but the meat is incredible. It's wonderful. Real character. When my book Lobster Shacks came out, he bought a bunch of them to sell. And I was there having dinner with my wife. And I saw the books. Bocce was like, me to sign these books. And he said, no, I'll sign these books. <laughs> and he was right. Because I'm just a schlub who writes these things. He's a character. He's known all over the place. You sit down and talk with his customers and all this stuff. And Another great place to uh, have a hot buttered lobster roll along the Connecticut shore is Liv's Shack. It's an offshoot of Liv's Oyster Bar, a famous restaurant on Main Street in Old Saybrook. Uh, Liv's Shack is a little place down by Saybrook Point Inn. Uh, has a wonderful lobster roll on a brioche bun. Pretty setting next to a nice marina there. Uh, a couple other places I'll mention just to keep the ball rolling on this. Captain Scott's in New London is a very fun place. Full service seafood uh, shack and a small market attached to it. And uh, right next in the shadow of downtown New London, all kinds of great seafood there on a thin little strip of land between the Amtrak tracks and trains that run between Boston and New York and a little commercial marina next door to it. Flanders Fish Market, not only a great seafood market, but a wonderful uh, restaurant as well with a really good hot buttered lobster roll. Uh, Olivia Formica, the daughter of the founder, also a CIA graduate, does a wonderful job in the kitchen, and um, there's plenty to choose from, plenty of great places to go up and down. Mike, we can't thank you enough for your time. We appreciate you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Mike Urban. He's a contributor to Yankee Magazine and the author of The New England Seafood Markets Cookbook. His new book, Unique Eats and Eateries in Connecticut, comes out in the fall. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Talarski. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week.